Hi, everyone. Welcome, and thanks for joining us on another Film Roundtable. My name is Maria Prieto, and I'm here to introduce our panelists today, as well as our guest moderator. But before we jump into the conversation, I'm going to lead us through a moment of silence to honor all reported worldwide 2,288,655 COVID deaths as of today. Uh, we're recording this February 5th, 2021. We would also like to honor all of our black and brown brothers and sisters, as well as our First Nations brothers and sisters, whose lives have been taken by the hands of police brutality and other senseless acts of violence. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Uh, as you all know, if you've been coming back and listening to these, we hold these moments before every talk, um, just to bring that awareness. You know, we're still living in this reality of a pandemic. We're still seeing violence. So, you know, just being aware, um, taking the time to really consider that each time we talk. Um, so today we've invited director Yoruba Richin to the round table. She's an award-winning documentary filmmaker whose latest film, How It Feels to Be Free, premiered last month on PBS's American Masters. Yoruba, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. Of course. And today, returning to the roundtable as our guest moderator, we have producer Mishka Brown. Welcome back, Mishka, and thanks for leading today's conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Before I hand it off to you, I quickly just want to thank our listeners for their continued support of this platform and to remind everyone to subscribe to the podcast, our YouTube channel, follow us on Instagram to stay up to date on these discussions. So Mishka, all yours. Thank you. I am very pleased to be talking with Yoruba. Um, before we get started, I'm just going to go through some of the rest of the films that you've worked on so that Folks know the scope of your work. In addition to how it feels to be free, which just premiered in January, um, and it's streaming on PBS through February. Yes, so it's on the American Masters website through February 16th, and then it's available on Amazon for rent or own. Or own. And, um, other recent films include the New York Times presents The Killing of Breonna Taylor, which is streaming on Hulu, The Sitting with Harry, um, The Sit-In, Harry Belafonte, The Tonight Show, which is streaming on Peacock and nominated for two NAACP Image Awards. Congrats. Thank you. Um, your previous film, The Green Book, Guide to Freedom, was broadcast on the Smithsonian Channel. It was nominated for an Emmy. Uh, your films, The New Black and Promised Land, won multiple festival awards before airing on PBS's Independent Lens and POV. You won the Creative Promise Award at Tribeca All Access and is a Sundance Producers Fellow. You are 2016 recipient of the Chicken and Egg Breakthrough Award and a Guggenheim Fellow. And interestingly, you're founding director of the documentary program at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. Um, I always love to hear the origin stories of directors. So um, how did you end up directing 
So I uh, came from a theater background, actually. I, um, my mom was a playwright and I grew up in the theater and I went to performing arts high school here in the city, LaGuardia, uh, where I majored in theater. I did a lot of theater in college. Um, and I always had this sort of uh, tug of war between being an actor or being in the, you know, a director uh, in theater and uh, wanting to work on social justice issues. Um, and, you know, not a tug of war, but always sort of dancing between the, the two. Uh, when I graduate, and I'd always loved documentaries, um, but, you know, growing up, it didn't necessarily seem like this was a field that you could, you know, go into and, and make a living uh, from. And then when I graduated college in the 90s, the, the technology got smaller and more accessible. And it was uh, the first time that I like picked up a camera uh, for a class and started worked with a friend of mine on making two videos. Um, I was looking for, I was in graduate school on, in, a, in a different uh, field in urban planning, but I wanted to, and I was a major concentrating in community development. And I really was wanted to look at how to tell the stories of these communities that I was sort of studying and, um, and, and, and policy, how to tell that those stories about how policy affected these communities in a way that was broader than just writing about it, quite frankly. And so I pitched uh, doing a video uh, for about, uh, it was a community of uh, what was then a mostly African-American community in San Francisco, Bayview Hunters Point, um, and how the welfare changes that were coming down in the 90s uh, was going to affect this community. And so my friend and I worked on this video. It was a total trial by fire. I had never, you know, shot or edited. We did it all ourselves. And it was really a eureka moment where I, you know, um, where I said, I want to, I want to do this. I want to do this. This is great. This brings together my different parts of myself, my social issue part, my creative part, interviewing, research. And, uh, and then I did another video about public education. And it was after the next year, it was after that, that I said, that I said, I'm going to really try to pursue this. Um, and I moved back to New York. I worked uh, at different, you know, under, uh, for a few different production companies. I found a mentor in uh, a great documentary filmmaker, St. Clair Bourne, who's no longer with us, but was hired me. Yes, yes. <laughs> New York. Um, and then I, you know, freelance for a couple of years, just, you know, working my way up, co-producing, associate producing. I went over to the news side um, in 2000. I started working for ABC News and I ended up working in the investigative unit for four years. And that gave me another sort of side to, you know, the journalism, um, the journalism side and, and the broadcast news side and seeing what that was about. And it was a good experience for me and that I got to, you know, pitch stories, work with edit work with camera people, editors. And, uh, but I knew all, I always wanted to do what we called at that point at that time, long form, you know, film, yeah. long form documentary. And so I uh, was able to get a fellowship 
that uh, brought me to South Africa, a journalism fellowship. And that was the beginnings, the origins of my first film, uh, which is called Promised Land. And it looks at uh, land reform in South Africa and the efforts for the black communities that had been kicked off of the land during apartheid to get their land back. Um, and so I embarked on that journey. Then I got you know, another fellowship that brought me to Brazil where I was able to make a short film. And, um, and then finishing Promised Land and I started my next film, The New Black, um, and, uh, and started teaching and, and founded this, the, the documentary program at, at uh, the Newmark School of, of Journalism, Graduate School of Journalism. And so that's kind of it in a nutshell. You know, you do one, you get the taste for it. You don't know if you're gonna you know, ever do another, but you, <laughs> you, you, you try to, try to uh, you know, you try to use that momentum and get the next one done. And, uh, and then of course, at the same time this is happening, the documentary field is really expanding in a way, um, you know, in a very exciting way in a lot of ways in that, you know, streamers are coming into the market, cable, right. uh, more, you know, news organizations doing, committing to documentary and the audience becoming more accustomed to watching documentaries. Uh, it's become right. part now of, you know, what people watch, which is really exciting. Well, you have um, gone through follow-up questions two through 10 <laughs> because I was definitely going to um, ask about making documentaries before the current boom, you know, it was a very different it was world. Really, yeah, it really was. I mean, I joke, you know, I mean, I joke about this in my regular life, right? Like I went to college before the internet. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't until uh, senior year, I discovered email. Um, and even in the late 90s, when I started working in documentary film, you know, there was, people weren't using the internet uh, like we use it now. I mean, we still went to libraries to research and, you know, all of that, all of that stuff. And now I look back, I'm like, how did you make document? How does one make documentaries? <laughs> So obviously the te the technology has really right. changed the game, and um, uh, you know I mean it's like technology in so many ways. There's a lot of good stuff about it, and a lot of stuff about it that you know I kind of miss. Like I loved going to libraries. I love looking through you know that kind of tactile research um, that you know is just something that you you don't really do anymore. Even um, pre COVID. Yeah, I mean, pre-COVID, you. I'm saying even pre-COVID, you're not going to yeah. libraries, really. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's just people are. Look, you can do everything online. You can do that research online. Um, but you know, the 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 basic the basics though are the same. You still are finding a story. You still are finding characters. You still have to figure out how to fund it. It's not like that's gotten easier necessarily. Right. Um, and you're still working with the team. And part of what I love about, also about documentary filmmaking is that it's a team sport. Um, and, you know, you work with the team and bring out the best in each other. Uh, and it's such a fulfilling, you know, it can, you know, most of the times it's incredibly fulfilling um, just from a personal level and a creative level. Have you been working with the same team on multiple projects? Do they carry over? Um, they, no, not necessarily. Um, I have, so like my first film, I was pretty much me and an editor <laughs> and 
you know, so I knew for my second film that I wanted to, for New Black, that I needed to work with a producer. So the role of the producer has gotten really important and it's been really, it's always been important, but it's now been really recognized as an essential part of the documentary team. Um, <clears throat> so I was able to work with a producer for the second film. And then even though we haven't worked together since then, uh, that producer, Yvonne Welbin, uh, uh, started working with Chicken and Egg, which, uh, you know, gave, uh, gave me a, a, an award um, and career mentoring and training. So I worked with her in that capacity. Um, the film, uh, I am, my film, How It Feels to Be Free, the producers and I are actively looking to work together again. So it, it certainly does happen. Um, and it's great uh, when, when that does happen. So it's like a larger filmmaking family, um, yes. even if you're not on specific films together. Exactly. Which, before we move on, I just wanna um, go back to like when I grasped my chest, uh, St. Clair Bloom, yes. just to honor him a little bit because he also um, never met in person before, although we know lots of people in common, but St. Clair was a, um, was a big part of why I'm in film now, you know, the Black Documentary Collective specifically, when I graduated from work. Absolutely. The movies that, you know, the, the murder of Fred Hampton, like all the movies that, um, like he educated me, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And Saint was, so Saint was the first person to actually hire me. And I, um, when I moved back to New York and my, he was friends with my mom and my mom uh, was able to, to, you know, connect us and he took a chance on me and hired me. And I was a production coordinator on a film he was producing about Gordon Parks, the legendary filmmaker and photographer, Gordon Parks. And I really got to see from the ground up, like what, uh, you know, what it meant to uh, make a film, to produce a film. And so it was so uh, educational for me. And Saint also um, became a mentor. He became, you know, a board, uh, board uh, for another film I was co-producing. He got, you know, became a, uh, was on the board of advisors for that film. And, and he was such a um, committed person. Um, and he also was such a talented person, obviously committed and just a great person to, to be around and, and hang out with and just sort of soak up his, his yeah. knowledge. When I knew him, it was during the time when he and um, Kathleen Cleaver were doing the um, Black Panther Festival. And yep. Yep. I look back now and I'm like, <laughs> um, you know, I totally appreciated it then, but not as much as I do now. Absolutely. Like it was, yeah. Absolutely. So mentoring has been really, you know, really important. I also uh, was one of the first uh, mentees in the Firelight Media, Stanley Nelson's uh, uh, media uh, mentorship program. And that was hugely, you know, hugely important too in helping me on my, both my first and second film. Um, so yeah, mentorship is incredibly important. Um, so let's go and talk about um, how it feels to be free. Um, there are a lot of <laughs> ways to get into it. I'm just gonna, not to be maudlin, but um, my mother died uh, in the 90s, not in the 90s, in the 2000s, but when I was pretty young. 
And uh, that song was what I played on her at her funeral. Um, Nina Simone's. It's just um, uh, so many parts of this movie is um, like I think resonant for just for everyone, but for Black women in particular. Um, and uh, you know Cicely Tyson, who we're still mourning. It's it feels like wrong to say Justice Lee Tyson like I can yes. say Nina but I feel like she needs like a lady <laughs> um in front of her name to get right. the well I called her our sorry. queen Queen Cicely Tyson that's that exactly. that's the proper yeah. title <laughs> but um hearing that you came from theater and like the body of work you did before can you just talk a little more about how you got to that um film in particular sure um well, as I said, I grew up in the theater and I grew up um, with, you know, knowing a little bit about all these women. Um, but when I read the book, How It Feels to Be Free, African-American uh, entertain Female Entertainers in the Civil Rights Movement by Professor Ruth Feldstein, I knew that it would make a really powerful film because I hadn't seen these women, um, their story told in a way that wasn't a biography, wasn't a biopic. I mean, not that I'd seen really biopics about these women, but that the, looking really at how they broke through in their particular time period and field and reshaped representation for black women, uh, the way that we were seen and the way that we saw ourselves and also their political work, which was on screen and, and off screen. Um, so the, the take of, of how to look at the, this cohort of women who sort of built off each other's success um, and each, you know, pushed the boundaries a little bit more. I just thought it was a fascinating way to understand, you know, um, our Black women entertainers role in the struggle and also uh, in the political struggle and also for representation. Um, there were a few shocking moments of the film uh, when I wanted, you know, when uh, Abby Lincoln was asked, I hesitate to call him a journalist. Yeah, um, a critic. When she was a critic, yeah. When she was accused of using the fact, using her blackness to exploit a career. <laughs> Um, that she was right? overdoing it, <laughs> but um, you know, it's like, um, uh, it's it's like they could not win no matter what they did. And the you know what strikes me so we had I'd read about that moment in the book, and you know we had had people explaining that moment, but when we heard found that footage uh, that audio, and you know, the fact that she had to defend herself uh, and the fact that the critic was so, um, was so adamant <laughs> about it and, and, and shameless, you know, it's just, it's just an incredible piece of footage of, you know, what black women entertainers had to deal with in terms of being judged by white critics and by white standards. And also, um, I listened to the album a lot last year, you know, yes. in the protest movement and her scream, you know, mm. um, but the freedom suite, but 
on the cover of that album and she is that album in so many ways so it's not just white critics it's like when she was there I think I think it was in the movie too where black people were saying that she was a troublemaker totally yes absolutely absolutely and that's one of the things that you know I show in the film that this there's this tension not only with white society but with with uh, you know, that they're having with their own people. So like, and it happens all, you know, for all of these women. So for example, like one of the, the things that I thought was so fascinating is Lena Horne, right? She gets this breakthrough, this groundbreaking contract where she refuses to play maids on screen, servants, people in the jungle. Um, and the first African-American to sign a, female to sign a contract with the studio. And she, uh, is, you know, she gets pushback from the black people who had been playing those roles, who had been in Hollywood, because they're saying, listen, if she's refusing to play those roles, you know, what does that mean for my career? Will those roles even be, you know, are they gonna get rid of those roles? So there's, right. you know, there's that tension that is throughout, throughout the film in these women's careers when you're pushing boundaries and when you're taking risks you know, that blowback comes from, you know, can come from all different corners. And I, speaking of Lena Horne, I, um, and St. Clair Bourne, um, you know, last summer, all the black, old black journal archives were, and they have the one on the black woman, right? And you can see it too in your documentary. It's like Lena Horne in particular, it's, there's so much pain and, loneliness and isolation, you know, her as opposed to um, Cicely Tyson. Yeah, well, she was, and she said, you know, look at the time period in 1940s, you know, uh, the, the, you know, we just come out of Gone with the Wind. And she's, you know, she is, is insisting uh, on her own representation and yet they don't know what to do with her. So she doesn't get roles speaking roles she's cut out of the southern market um and you know but she was a star for the black for i mean she was a star too precisely because she didn't do those roles and she refused right. those roles but she she was still a star i mean lena horn was a you know in the black community and the white community um and but she definitely you know made a lot of sacrifices and her career suffered because of the choices that she made and her political choices as well. What she, what you describe her having to do to even maintain her singing career. That's right. It is um, painful. Yeah. But yes, um, it's interesting. They're all so different. Like all of the, the ways that they were shaped by what they couldn't do in their political activities, you know, some of it, for what they weren't able to do, but for someone like Cicely Tyson or someone like Nina Simone, it's like how much it affected their work. You don't want to say necessarily positively because goodness knows what they would have produced without having to fight so much. Exactly, yeah. and we have uh, Jacqueline Stewart says that, you know, um, what, you know, even with someone like a Pam Greer who tried to get out of expand beyond black exploitation, 
um, and, you know, face resistance. What could have, and it wasn't until really the 90s, right, with Jackie Brown that we see that we're able to see the breadth of her talent. And, you know, thankfully she's still working today. Um, but that, that was the case with all of these women. Um, you mentioned that your mom was also in theater and I think about it too, um, not just um, in film, but in some ways, first generation at college, you know, um, and looking at, with, in the movie, looking at the, you also have like Lena Waithe and Alicia Keys, like a later generation, Halle Berry, but, um, but the numbers in terms of representation, it's still really small and still challenging, but like, do you, do you feel any particular um, burden, not burden, but like what the question is, what do we, like our generation do with the freedom that we have, you know? Yeah, well, one of the things that I think is so interesting, just the first part of what you just said is that, yeah, I mean, I grew up, you know, in the 80s, 70s and 80s watching television um, and, you know, there was very few choices uh, that had, very few things that had uh, uh, in film or television, you know, and I was a movie, you know, I, I watched all those teen movies, those John Hughes movies, you know, uh, those, you know, square pegs and family ties, all that stuff. I totally watched it with, you know, and there just weren't black people. <laughs> they just weren't black people. And, you know, looking back, a lot of that stuff was actually racist. You know, we, uh, we, 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 um, uh, you know, when you go back and watch some of that stuff, it's, it's pretty, pretty shocking. A lot of them. Yeah. A lot of them. So, and then of course, you know, you have these, we have these breakthroughs. We have, you know, Spike Lee, I remember sitting, you know, being with my mom waiting online uh, at a theater, you know, um, that used to be near Lincoln Center, huge line to get into She's Gotta Have It. Like it was a huge deal, huge, huge deal. Going to see Do the Right Thing, huge deal. Malcolm X, huge deal. Like that was like totally, oh, the first time that I saw that black people you know, were making, could make a film that was in Hollywood. Then of course you have the nineties and then, you know, Bill Cosby show was another breakthrough. Right. And then nineties, the you have, you know, more Spike Lee, you have John Singleton, and then you don't really see anything for a, a while. Right. Like you don't really see much for a while. Um, until now, until this Renaissance, I would say of storytelling that we're seeing in television and with, streaming obviously that's opened up so much um and showrunners and people like shonda and ava and lena who are doing fabulous stuff uh isa i'm calling them by the first names as if you know i i know them but <laughs> you feel like you know them because they're you so do. so what they're doing is so amazing so i'm so happy to be have a plethora, you know, me, my partner and I laugh like, oh, what, what show do we want to watch? We could watch Blackish, we could watch Insecure, DVR, you know, it's a, it's amazing. It's amazing. Obviously, it's still- P-Valley. Yeah, I don't have stars, so I haven't watched P-Valley. Hopefully it'll come, I'll figure out a way to watch it. Um, but yeah, so absolutely amazing, but yet those numbers are still so small. Right, <laughs> it's because there was there was not there was so little before then, um, 
but I forget what your initial question was. <laughs> um, it's just that. Oh, a responsibility. I, feels, uh, not, and I don't want to spurt in, but just like in everything, it's like when I was in college, like it felt, it always felt like more than for me, you know, it's like when you're working, it's like a generational responsibility, even like, totally. I think St. Clair, like embodied that too. His yeah. dedication to mentoring. Yeah. And uh, it's also, I mean, I, because I grew up with my mother who was a political playwright, those things were always connected to me, entertainment and, and politics. And she, in her work, she was really, and I didn't quite understand it. And she's, she's no longer with us, but I didn't quite understand until I was older, what really what she was trying to do with her work, which is art articulating the experiences of black woman of being black and being a woman, you know, in various, you know, from his history to, you know, she was writing about police brutality in the 1980s. She was right, wrote a play about Zora Neale, Zora Neale Hurston, you know, in the 70s. So that- um, What's her name? Her name is Aisha Rahman. Um, and so that sort of melding of the, those, as I said, of politics and entertainment was very, really, which is really about, you know, articulating our history, our experience, um, and, you know, being part of a cohort of women, of black women who are telling these stories. Um, it seems like a good time to bring up uh, your other recent movie, uh, the New York Times presents Killing of Breonna Taylor. I definitely have um, questions about, um, were you making them simultaneously? Like the events that it covers happened less than a year ago, you know? Um, so I'm curious about the process of making it and were you working on both of them? So, um, to go back to How It Feels to Be Free. So How It Feels to Be Free was a five-year journey. Um, and I had the, basically the way that I made that film is, you know, we uh, started, we optioned the book in 2015, raised a little bit of development money, did some shooting, initial shooting, raised a little bit more development money the next year, did some more shooting, and then, it took a couple of years to get in the production funding, but I had done, you know, a good amount of shooting beforehand. Um, the money for that came together. The production money all came together literally at the beginning of COVID. Um, so right around- Oh, it feels you know, to be free? Or how it feels to be free. So oh, wow. right around okay. like April, March, late March, we had everything in place and then COVID. Um, so what that meant is that, you know, things had to shut down for a minute, um, in terms of our own production. Meanwhile, then we heard, you know, a couple months later that American Masters, which had been, you know, with us from the beginning, wanted us to have the film by January 15th, um, and to meet that deadline. So obviously, you know, the, everything was shut down. The production company that now that was, that had come on, come on as producers, additional producers, you know, in addition to my original producer, uh, TruthAid, um, they were in Canada. 
So that's where the edit was going to be. That's where, and you know, that couldn't happen because we couldn't travel. So there was a couple of months of working remotely. Um, and uh, as I said, because I had done some shoot, you know, a fair amount of shooting and scripting, we were able to start where we were, uh, you know, where start, we were able to start even without doing additional shooting and working and we worked remotely. Meanwhile, the events uh, over the summer unfolded and by June, Brianna's uh, case became, was starting to get more well-known and the New York Times called me um, the, 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 the program and they wanted to do a, um, you know, they wanted to do this film about what happened to Brianna Taylor. And it was something that I, you know, could not say no to. I immediately wanted to be a part of it and wanted to direct it. And so, uh, but that happened really fast. So it was in June and the film came out in September, which is a very quick turnaround. Um, so I- For an hour long piece. For an hour long piece, yeah. Uh, and an investigative piece. So it's, yeah. you know, so yes, they kind of were at the same time, but certainly, you know, because I had to work remotely anyway from, uh, you know, with How It Feels to Be Free, the editor was able to, you know, continue to put together cuts. I was, you know, focused on Brianna. Um, were you actually in, in, in Kentucky? Were you the one yeah. doing those interviews? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was in Louisville. We drove down. Uh, my partner and I drove down to Louisville and I was there for about three weeks. And uh, we, you know, then started, the editors start, were starting to work on, work on it. Uh, as were, I was, were you there with the cam, I'm sorry, I'm getting, were you there with the camera person or did yep, you? camera person, yeah. Okay. Yep, camera person, it was me, camera person and the producer. Um, okay. So it was a small, a small team, we, you know, followed COVID protocols. That's the only time I've shot now with like Verite stuff or any of, you know, in-person stuff. The rest of the, the interviews I've done in COVID have been remote, but uh, you know, we needed to be there for this. Yeah, I'm glad that you did, that you were there because those interviews with her mother in particular, but um, her friends, that yeah. whole segment where they're just free to talk about her and um, I had some of the, when her mother did me of a Lucille Clifton poem, when she talks about her daughters, when she said she was a better version of me, full of life, right? to love. Yeah, and um, friends were like laughing yeah. because of who Brianna what was to them. That's and right. I was just thinking of outside of the camera of you in person, like what does it feel present and yeah. shooting during that those moments you know yeah it was very um, emotional quite frankly and um what i came to understand is um is that you know the loss of you know it was the second time i've talked about it in the last two couple of days and um It's just, you know, it's, it's just really still emotional. So what I came to, to understand in a really real way is that the loss of Brianna was not just the loss of a, a daughter, 
right, or a sister. But the, the, the reverberations for the whole community, it was the loss of a, a mentor, it was the loss of a, uh, cousin, uh, of a close cousin, of a friend, of, um, of, you know, it was a loss of the community and the community- the prominent, Right, not just the daughter, I started there with the daughter, but the reverberations that go through the community. Um, no, she, I mean, she when she talks about picking baby names, oh, it's just it's it's unimaginable. And then you think of it being multiplied. Exactly, and the fact that you know they still haven't gotten justice, and they, um, <laughs> you know, it's it's so it's beyond it's beyond the beyond, you know. Um, but it was a real, uh, I'm, so, I'm so grateful that they shared those stories with me and that we were able to tell the her story and to give some sense of who Brianna was um, and uh, you know, who she was as a person and, and the, you know, the injustice around you know, what happened to her and to, and to Kenny. Um, and you know, thinking about it, at the same time of the art and how Queen Cicely talked about the role she wanted to play and embody and Nina Simone's anger and like Abby Lincoln's like, like the drive, the need that, what was behind their need to do art and to do it right. <laughs> You know, it really um, also resonates when you hear about Brianna Taylor, because you can easily imagine an hour long documentary being made about it with none of her humanity. That's right. Being shared, you know? Yeah. And that's why, you know, I think, frankly, you know, when we also made this film in the middle of the racial reckoning that we're having in this country and in all industries, you know, of, uh, another sort of facet of this whole thing is that even though documentary is, has, I think historically, well, now I don't know if historically, but is a bit better in terms of um, having uh, people of color directors and producers, I think it's just a little bit better than, than Hollywood, but there's a long tradition of other people telling our stories. I mean, and it still goes on um, and you know, that you could have seen in some other time that that story would, you know, they might, they might not have even thought to have a black person tell that story or a black woman specifically. Um, and, you know, that's been a big problem in our industry as well. Yeah, it contextualizes in a very different way when they say, the report says no injuries. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly, exactly. <laughs> You don't and get a sense. Yeah, and as you said, that could have been told without her humanity. Um, and a lot of times, our stories, you know, these stories were told without, you know, uh, with without the depth of understanding that you know we are who we are as people and what we mean to our community and to our family, because our humanity is often not recognized. And it's yeah, it's it's. It makes total sense, but also make, it's, makes no sense that we're still 
like <laughs> having to just prove, just talk about the basic fact that we are human, right. Black Lives Matter, <laughs> you totally. know? Real basic stuff, <laughs> exactly. Which is why the phrase Black Lives Matter is so resonant, right? It's very simple. It's, you know, it's, and it, it kind of embodies, you know, the, the inhumanity that we have, we have experienced in this country and still continue to experience on a lot of levels. Um, are you uh, open to talk about what you are working on currently and next? Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, there are a few things that I'm working on. <laughs> uh, one thing that looks like it's coming to the fore is, you know, it's funny, sometimes with shorts, so it's a, it was initially a short piece um, and you'd think with short pieces, oh, it's gonna, you know, this will be quick, it'll be done. But of course, because of various things, I've been working on it now for a, a few years. Uh, but it's a short that I'm co-directing with the director, Brad Lichtenstein, who uh, brought me onto the project. And it's about an unsolved murder in a civil rights murder in Natchez, Mississippi, and how the FBI failed to uh, find the perpetrator of this murder, who was a, uh, uh, the gentleman who was murdered was a um, NAACP official uh, who uh, had uh, gotten a, a promotion at a tire plant that was considered a, a white job. Um, and there was a local uh, KKK offshoot group that is thought to have killed, had a bunch of murders in this community in this um, in this community and in this time period and this is one of the he was bombed and the son Warless Jr. found his body and we're working with the family um, to tell their story and so they when it happened in the late 60s the FBI you know did this in these investigations but no one was ever brought to justice and then the case was reopened uh, under the Emmett Till uh, Act where all of these unright, unsolved civil rights cases were, were opened and nobody no one was ever brought to justice under the that act as well so looking at how the government failed to uh, find the you know terrorists the domestic white terrorists who killed him and in these other cases as well. Also, sadly, particularly resonant. Yes. After the coup attempt. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yep. Um, well, I know we are out of time, but I thank you so much thank for you. making space for this. It was a pleasure. Thanks for your movies. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you.